0: looking to avoid some of the rules which were targeting them at the end of the Trump administration. There may start to be a bit of hope. From the WeChat and TikTok ban cases and now Xiaomi and Lokum, it seems like a playbook is developing for how these companies can fight back in U.S. courts. This episode, we get into the Xiaomi case, where it recently got an injunction and settlement to stop it from being included on a list of companies off-limits to U.S. investors, including big institutional funds. If you take a step back for a second, that a Chinese company can bring a suit like this in a U.S. federal court and win. It shows you how robust the system is in the U.S. on due process and checks and balances. Join us as we talk to Tim O'Toole, partner at Miller & Chevalier and someone who has brought multiple cases before the judge who actually decided the Xiaomi case.
1: But we've had a number of other WeChat and and other companies have been successful in challenging some of these national security orders. That is a big deal in, in the because I can tell you two years ago and certainly four or five years ago, the idea that a company could go to U.S. courts and challenge an order that was based on national security grounds and win quickly like these cases have done, it was really unheard of.
0: Join us for the discussion on another episode of Gun Bay. Welcome everybody to another episode of Ganbe. I'm your host, Art Dicker. Today we have the pleasure to be joined by Tim O'Toole. Tim is a partner at Miller & Chevalier, a boutique regulatory firm in DC, and he is head of the white collar defense practice there. Welcome, Tim.
1: Thanks, Art. I'm really happy to be on the show and, and thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we have a quite a symbiotic relation with you and and, and as Brian Fleming as well, who you're both co-hosts of another podcast called Embargoed, which I'm a big fan of, and I encourage everybody here to check it out. Tell us a little bit about the show.
1: So on Embargoed, we try to talk about trade, current trade issues. We mostly focus on sanctions and export controls issues. And for much of the last year, our show has been 70, 80% devoted to issues related to China. So Mm -hmm. it's been a really interesting time for those sorts of issues. It's a little less so now, but I think in a good way.
0: Yeah, we had a real firestorm of, of uh, cases and rules coming out, and we're going to get into some of those today as they've as the, been taken over and the baton's been handed over to the the Biden administration. On first of those topics, so we've got basically two topics today. First, we're going to talk about the Xiaomi case, which was basically Xiaomi and then a company called Loquang, which is uh, more English pronunciation would be, and they are a Lokung is a mapping technology company. Xiaomi, of course, is the, br- is the brand name, which even a lot of folks in the US, I think, have heard of before making mobile phones and on other devices. Xiaomi, let me set up the intro just a little bit here. Xiaomi successfully filed a suit in US federal court to uh, block impl- implementation of a ban that would have prevented US persons from essentially investing in publicly traded stocks of Chinese companies, as defined in a list by the US Department of Defense as communist China military companies. Now, before we get into the, to the details, we're going to talk about that Xiaomi case and the Luokuan case, and then we're going to uh, follow up with a new rule that's come out on, on supply chain. It's not so new, it's been out a couple months, but we're going to get an update on where that's headed. Big picture I want to set up because I think it's confusing sometimes for the audience who doesn't follow this as closely as I do, or especially you do, on a big picture on the overall rules that are out there in the media these days, because I think it's easy to confuse them. So I will let me just take 30 seconds to to frame that. As I understand, and Tim, please correct me if I'm wrong, there are basically now rules which forbid, and those have been on the books for some time now, forbid Chinese companies from buying certain kinds of US companies, which are essentially sensitive for national security. And those fall under CFIUS and now FIRMA. And for the audience, you might have heard of cases about the the TikTok case being looked at by the Trump administration for buying Musical.ly. That's bucket number one. Then we have rules on U.S. companies uh, that prevent U.S. companies from selling or licensing certain kind of technology to Chinese companies. That's a lot of the rules that that the news that's come out off and on about Huawei. uh, And those are generally called export control rules. A third bucket we have, which we're gonna get into, is rules that prevent U.S. companies from buying certain kind of covered technology and services from Chinese companies. That's what I talk about in the second half. First off though, we're gonna talk about, again, the rules that prevent U.S. persons from investing in Chinese companies affiliated with Chinese military. Now, as for, just wanted to set all that up for the audience so that you don't have to do it, Tim, and save your energy for the heart of the discussion here. Can you walk us through a little bit about these two cases that have uh, been come up recently with Xiaomi and, and Luo Kung? And uh, and I know Xiaomi's come up with a settlement and Luokung's just got a favorable ruling. Can you walk us through what those cases have been about?
1: Absolutely, Art. And and that was a really good summary of a lot of the different little trade rules that the U.S. has come up with, many of which came at the the tail end of the Trump administration. Although, as we'll talk about, I'm sure some of these rules have continued on into the Biden administration. But starting with Xiaomi, so in back in the back 20 years ago, you really need to start this story 20 years ago, the US Congress passed a law that that really didn't have much of an effect on trade, didn't have much of an effect, period. But it did require the Department of Defense to make a list within six months of the law, which was passed in 1999, of companies operating in the United States that were owned, controlled, or affiliated with the Chinese military. And in the US, and I don't know if it's the same way in China, sometimes Congress passes laws and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And this was a a good example of Congress passing a law where nothing happened at all for 20 years. But last summer, and I think at the instigation of a couple of very anti-China senators in our, our US Senate, the Department of Defense decided that it was going to start listing those companies operating in the U.S. that were owned, controlled, or affiliated with the Chinese military. And it came out with a preliminary list last June, so June of 2020, almost a year ago. And then in August, it came out with a few additional companies on that list. And again, it was just a list. So it didn't really have much consequence, but it was a list that that the Department of Defense put together. And then it, presumably what Congress intended back 20 years ago is that there would be a list and then Congress would study whether there should be any consequences for being on the list. But instead of that happening in November of, of 2020, President Trump issued an executive order that incorporated that list, but then essentially made it, it, it made it, And the 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 order went through several changes because I think it was put together so quickly that they hadn't really figured out exactly what they were trying to prohibit. But at the end of the day, what they prohibited was they prohibited U.S. persons, so that's U.S. citizens, green card holders, companies organized in the United States, from owning and then essentially purchasing or trading in the shares, the publicly traded shares of companies that were on this list. So that was a big deal, especially for companies that had that, and it was any Publicly traded, so it's any stock market. It's not just the mm-hmm. U.S. markets, but it's markets around the world. So at that point, U.S. investors are a significant portion of the world investment market, and that made it much more difficult yeah. for for U.S. investors to invest in those stocks. And you so, like
0: pension people got to remember, you got like pension funds, you exactly, got, uh, all, exactly, huge institutional funds,
1: exactly. So any fund that was a U.S. person w- was at that point prohibited from investing in the stocks of these companies. Now, as I said. It took 20 years for the Department of Defense to come up with a list, and the Department of Defense in the U.S. system is not really an entity that makes lists. Our our Treasury Department, and really it's the Office of Foreign Assets Control, has, has some real professional staffers who have years and years of experience with deciding, looking at the information, looking at the intelligence, trying to figure out whether or not a company or a person meets the criteria for being on a list, going through a process to make sure that that determines is accurate and then coming out with a list. And so when OFAC puts a company or a person onto a blacklist, there's been a lot of thought put into it. I'm not saying they always get it right, but they actually are professionals who really have done this before many times and are trying their best to get it right. The Department of Defense doesn't have any mechanism like that. And so the listing criteria were really, they weren't transparent. And at the time they made the lists. It wasn't even clear that the list had any consequence and and they didn't do the sorts of things that you would expect, or at least we've come to expect agencies like OFAC to do. For example, they wouldn't get the name of the company. A company like Huawei has precise corporate organizations that make up Huawei. So they have the Huawei company in in, in China that, that has a headquarters and has a formal corporate name. And when OFAC lists a company like that, they'll use the formal corporate name, they'll put the address, they will make sure that when they put a company on the list that it's Huawei this particular organization located at this place. If they want to list a Huawei subsidiary, they put the formal name of the subsidiary and the address of the subsidiary, so you know who they're talking about. The Defense Department list, as we'll talk about, had misspellings. They just, when they listed Huawei, they just said Huawei, which is not an, a company at all. And so so it was a really, odd list. Companies in the U.S. that were put onto the list, and particularly Xiaomi, which was put on the list a little bit later than the original listings, but was put on after the president's executive order and was facing the possibility that U.S. persons would not be able to invest in their securities, brought a lawsuit in the United States. And they brought a lawsuit under both the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a law that allows um, companies and persons to challenge agency actions, so actions of agencies like the Department of Defense, and also under our U.S. Constitution, in which guarantees due process, so if they're going to essentially affect a property interest, like the property interests of Xiaomi, Xiaomi has a right to challenge whether or not the process was fair. And so Xiaomi brought a lawsuit in U.S. District Court and challenged the fairness of the process. And really what they said was the the law here that Congress passed and that that was the basis of President Trump's executive order, required that a for a company to be put on this list, they had to be owned, controlled, or affiliated with the Chinese military. And we don't think the Defense Department did enough process to determine this. And they pointed to the two-page memorandum that the Defense Department had put together, making this determination that didn't really say much of than that, that Xiaomi was a Chinese company and it had some Undefined connection with the Chinese military. But then, but in addition, we don't think they use the right definition of affiliated. So the term affiliated, everybody agreed that Xiaomi is not owned or controlled by the Chinese military. But the question was were they affiliated with the Chinese military? And Xiaomi took the position, and ultimately it was successful, that they were not. That the the right definition of affiliated is that it's effectively controlled by another. So there's owned or controlled or essentially effectively controlled by another or under common ownership or control. So even if, if you're not formally owned or controlled by the Chinese military, to be affiliated, you have to be effectively controlled by the Chinese military, that it is much broader than just having some undefined connection to the Chinese military. And the court accepted that definition. And that was really important because once it accepted that definition, it was really clear that Xiaomi, which was a a publicly traded company, produced products for civilian use, controlled by an independent board of directors and shareholders, was not effectively controlled by the Chinese military. And that's what the court found. And so the court and in the U.S., the way that the way that you challenge these determinations is you bring what's called a preliminary injunction motion. So you say, "Look, this is really important and it's urgent." And the urgency here was that Xiaomi, the the order was going to be become effective for Xiaomi in March. I think this was taking place a little bit before that, and so that the if the court didn't rule, then Xiaomi was going to be injured by having. US persons not being able to trade in their shares anymore.
0: Irreparably harmed.
1: Exactly. Irreparably harmed because essentially they would face this harm and they couldn't, there would be no way to measure it. So they, Xiaomi said we're going to be irreparably harmed. And the other factor, there's four factors, but the main two are irreparable harm, as you said, are and then likelihood of success. So how likely is it that Xiaomi is going to win? And the court found that Xiaomi had met the standard met the standard of likelihood of success because there really was no showing in the Defense Department memo that they were affiliated under the proper definition of the term with the Chinese military. And so that the court ordered the the defense department and the treasury department, which is the one that now implements the defense department list to not apply this rule to Xiaomi. That is that Xiaomi would have faced no prohibition on the buying and selling of the shares. Now a preliminary injunction means that order stands throughout the course of the litigation. So until the litigation ended, that Xiaomi was going to be allowed to continue to sell its shares. It would do what they call preserve the status quo, meaning the rule now, and the rule at the start of the, the case was that Xiaomi could buy and sell, that US persons could buy and sell Xiaomi shares. So that would be the rule until the case was decided. And then recently, and you know, or, or earlier this month, after this ruling, Xiaomi settled with the Department of Defense and the settlement was not really a settlement at all. It's basically the Department of Defense agreed that Xiaomi won the case and was not going to be on the list and was not going to be subject to this prohibition.
0: And it's fascinating in the background. These are companies are live and publicly trading and they did news. This is material news that affects their stock price. You could see the stock jumping and falling as this was going on and there was this news coming out.
1: Absolutely. You can, and it went both ways, right? So when Xiaomi is put on the list, it, it really hurt their stock quite severely. And then as soon as that Xiaomi wins the case, the stock went way up because now investors know that Xiaomi is not going to be facing this prohibition on the buying and selling of its stock. So to the extent that expectation was earlier built into the market, it completely went away.
0: So I've got tons of questions on this and I think this is absolutely fascinating both of these cases which are similar cases Xiaomi and Kong, I think honestly if you take a step back for a second that a Chinese company can bring a suit like this in in US federal court and win and I just it just shows you the robust system we have I think a lot of people let's just say outside of the United States what might be surprised, or at least still somewhat, yeah, I guess, surprise is the right word that, for example, Xiaomi could bring this case and they, and the government would have to actually divulge the dot that two pager that she said, the document that shows the factual analysis that they used. To make this determination of putting them on the list that that's that's publicly has to be disclosed or at least has to be disclosed to a party bringing the litigation i think that's one remarkable thing that we shouldn't just necessarily take for granted that the company's able to do that second that that the judge is essentially yeah they're appealing through due process under the constitution that, that, that even foreign companies have a right to, to bring these kinds of cases if they're affected and, and, potentially irreparably harmed and so forth. I wonder what you think about this as being a crack that's opening up for firms to to see a light at the end of the tunnel, or at least see a playbook here brought. First, maybe let's talk about this specific rule. And you see other companies either going to the Department of Defense directly now and saying, look, our facts are very similar to Xiaomi. We would like to quote settle with you as well about this list. Or do you think it's so fact-specific that some that all cases will have to go uh, similarly go through li- uh, litigation like this? How do you see future of companies using this ruling?
1: Yeah, so I think there'll be a little bit of both. On the one hand, you have a, a defense department that does not have the the institutional kind of buy-in that the earlier defense department had. The Biden defense department did not put these companies on the list for the most part. Right. And so they're not going to be as invested as in defending this list as the earlier Defense Department might have been. So I think there is some likelihood that with respect to companies where it's clear that they don't meet Judge Contreras's definition in, in Xiaomi of affiliated, that you'll probably have the Defense Department settling those cases. Mm. I, I do think that one thing, and and we'll talk about it also in connection with the, the ICTS rules, the Biden administration has bought in, at least in some ways, to some of these Trump administration rules. Sure. And so the Biden administration has certainly not abandoned this sanctions program with respect to companies affiliated with the Chinese military. There was some chance that it would, but it doesn't appear to be doing that. And so I, I, I think that there will be cases where, There is more of a dispute whether or not the company is Meets Judge Contreras' definition of affiliated with the Chinese military, that will still go to litigation. But I do expect to see more litigation in this area, in part because not only have had, was Xiaomi successful, Lao Kun was successful, but we've had a number of other WeChat and and other companies have been successful in challenging some of these national security orders. That is a big deal in in the U.S. because I, I can tell you. Two years ago, and certainly four or five years ago, the idea that a company could go to U.S. courts and challenge an order that was based on national security grounds and win quickly like these cases have done. It was really unheard of and now it's happened at least four times that I can count in the last in the last year and that it means that there will be more challenges because many of these orders have gone I think beyond what the US government used to do in this area.
0: But that's that definitely begs the question peeling back the onion a bit. Certainly the, the like Biden the Biden administration I think for sure is not going to have this necessarily the same appetite to extend these lists or to fight to the bitter end to keep everyone on the list if there's a challenge. Do we think that there'll be appetite to quote fix these rules as well. So for example, the case with Xiaomi and and Luo Kong had a clear weakness among other weaknesses. They had a which we talked about already. You mentioned the affiliated with language where the natural as the as the Department of defense argued look we want this interpretation which is basically means associated with the chinese military and xiaomi said no it should mean what's more common practice in the commercial contract world which is means common ownership common control standard definition of affiliates that i see every day in my practice of defining affiliates and the analysis was that if we go with the department of defense's definition very broad definition that would essentially be a rabbit hole or that would be Such a broad definition that you could almost throw every company into that definition by the nature of of how China works and probably even other countries would you'd have a similar situation. So if there is what now appears to be, again, a quote hole in this regulation or the Department of Defense being more careful in the factual analysis that they prepare, knowing it's likely to have to be disclosed to a court at some point.
1: Yeah. So on on the last question, I'll take that one first. I I definitely think the DOD will become more careful because it's lost twice in court. I think they've seen now that they're not going to get away with just like, Throwing any explanation out there and having a court say well, it's national security, so we're not going to really review this closely. If the Department of Defense says that they meet the definition, we're just going to go along with that, which is what agencies, particularly the Department of Defense, have been used to for years. And so, I think having these two losses in succession, to the extent that they keep the same definition, they're going to have to work a lot harder to get it right, and and they'll probably. Um, be a lot more cautious and a lot more careful than they were in the past. Uh, In in connection with whether or not they'll change the definition, that'll be harder because the, the definition that Judge Contreras used came from a statute. So Congress passed the statute, the president signed the statute. And in our system, because it's so hard to get the House of Representatives and the Senate and the president to agree on virtually anything, they'd need to go back and get a new law in order to change that definition. And I just don't see them being able to say the definition that Judge Contreras used of affiliated was just so narrow that we can't put any companies in the, into this list, even though they're really closely tied to the Chinese military. And it still leaves a lot of room to if what we're trying to do is essentially stop us financial support that is going to chinese military or companies that are closely affiliated with the chinese military this definition works fine and it's gonna it, it strikes me as hard for congress to come up with some sort of emergency that we don't just need to get companies that are affiliated we need to get any company that has any connection whatsoever how all however tenuous with the chinese military that just strikes me as a hard sell could happen but i just don't see the momentum politically for that happening anytime soon
0: Got it i i i i, I completely agree and, and i think one of the struggles that folks drafting these rules face and i think we're going to get into it in the second half of the conversation as well is definitions right because living in china I know whether you're trying to in to define the right entity for example on an export control list or you're okay. trying to define uh, a term that covers the proper scope when China the system is a bit different right it's a is it is it is a capitalist system or at least it's the, okay. the more politically correct way to describe it as a market oriented system but there is a lot of involvement of the state and that's by choice so I do have some sympathy for trying to craft rules that that are not too broad, but not too narrow and not have too many, again, quote holes in it. But it's a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, I think, in some ways, especially as I've, in my experience, dealt with export control lists over the years, because if you really need one that end, that list should almost be updated in real time because you have, it's so easy to, to reincorporate or to get the names wrong. In fact, one of the, as we were joking about before, joking, we we're making light of the fact that the, the judge in this case, right up front, very quickly off the bat, acknowledged that the comp- that the Department of Defense got the name wrong of the company. In the case of, of Luo Kung again, the Chinese would be Luo Kuang. And I, I have sympathy for that even as well, because you would do, and I think the explanation was that the, the, they got the transliteration wrong, which is true. I think that still is not actually quite a good excuse as, as, a, as I saw it, but there are different ways to put the name in from Chinese characters into a Romanized alphabetic spelling. So I don't, I guess my overall, my point is it's, I have some sympathy for these poor folks that do have to try to come up with these rules and define things. But I still think the judge was right to say, look, you could go to the company's website. This is the listed traded name of the company. It's pretty easy to get the name right. And that by the fact that you didn't get the name right,
1: yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that it, you could imagine a different set of facts where the judge had, where the Department of Defense had gotten the name wrong, because transliteration issues are are difficult. And one of the reasons that OFAC, which is much more careful about this, not only uses a Western spelling, but also uses the Chinese characters whenever it puts somebody on a list, because they're trying to make sure that there's no kind of ambiguity about what they're doing. You can imagine a set of circumstances where the Defense Department got the name spelling wrong But the memorandum itself was so careful that the judge viewed it as just a typo that anybody could make, as opposed to just one of the many symbols of the fact that these guys really know nothing about Liu other than that it's in China and it has some undefined connection to the Chinese military, which could be said about many companies in China. And that's not pointing a finger at China. It, It could be said about many companies in the United States. There's many companies here in the States that have some undefined connection to our US military. We spend a lot of money on the military, and there's a lot of U.S. companies that sell things to the military or do things with the military here that are not affiliated in any formal sense of the term for the U.S. military, but certainly have enough of a connection to the U.S. military that if China were to make a similar list, it could put, it, put those companies on a list of U.S. companies affiliated with the U.S. military in the same way. So it's one of those things where if If the defense department had been really careful and this had been an isolated slip, I think the judge wouldn't have even mentioned it. It would have looked petty, but where the where they were so completely careless and it was just we think you'll buy off on anything. So we don't even have to get their name. I think the judge decided to say, if you want to be that sloppy with me, I'm going to call you on it.
0: Fair, very fair. I think that's exactly right. Normally, yeah, they wouldn't. But if but it's just it's one one other fact that shows the overall kind of approach they took to making up this list and for putting this company on it i want to switch over now and that think that was a great analysis this is really a two-part so we want to switch over to icts which is securing the information and communications technology and services supply chain it's an executive order let me also save you let you save your energy tim a bit for the real analysis and and value add and i'll Take care of the nuts and bolts here off top. The Department of Commerce has authority under this rule to prohibit certain ICTS uh, transactions which have been designed, developed, manufactured, or supplied by persons owned by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of foreign ad- and that pose basically an undue or unacceptable risk to the United States. Foreign adversaries are listed as countries like China, Russia, Iran, the usual suspects. The pretty broad, I think we can get into that in a a second, but basically it's going after acquisitions, importation transfer, installation, dealing in, or use of covered technologies or services. In layman's terms, it prohibits U.S. purchasers or buyers from purchasing technology or services from China that could pose certain uh, security risks. I think it's a, a, a way to sum it up. Tim, how, what is this rule about? And it sounds like it could have a really broad application. And I think even the DOC itself in the rulemaking process and in, in what they put out, and put out in the federal register admits it's such. It could be extremely broad potentially. So how is this ever going to actually get implemented in, in practice?
1: It remains to be seen because as you point out, Art, this rule is incredibly broad. It gives the Secretary of Commerce the ability to basically stop or mitigate Virtually any transaction that takes place in the information and communications technology sector, which is a a huge sector of both the Chinese and the U.S. economies, that that involves what the the rule defines as foreign adversaries. And so essentially the premise of this rule is that there are countries that the U.S. has an adversarial relationship with that make things that are within the, the ICT supply chain. That's a critical sector of the U.S. economy and to protect the that supply chain will allow the Secretary of Commerce to really prohibit any transaction within that sector. Now, are, is how many of those transactions, and there's millions and millions of these transactions, how many is the Secretary of Commerce gonna look at, much less prohibit? I think it remains to be seen, but I think it's gonna be a very small number. And so it's this broad rule that essentially says the Secretary of Commerce can do anything he or she wants with respect to a huge number of transactions and we're going to be left to find out as time goes on what those transactions are and honestly i think that's not a very good way to run a railroad and i think it's going to be depending upon what the secretary of commerce does it's going to be an area that's ripe for litigation like the type we saw in the xiaomi case and the the case
0: yeah, that was going to be my next question. It seems like it seems just waiting for this to come to become a final rule, and then and actually have some implementation rules, more implementation rules, come out. And it just seems open for challenge. Similar process, then I guess is what would be some of the the grounds. be constitutional grounds, or would they be would they have to actually wait for a case to for a decision to be brought by a DOC?
1: Yeah, I think this is one where there's going to have to be a case, and I think that's very different from there was a similar. Uh, process that took place at the end of the Trump administration with respect to WeChat and TikTok. And those allowed the Secretary of Commerce to essentially do virtually anything that he, then it was Wilbur Ross, wanted to do with respect to prohibiting transactions involving TikTok and WeChat. And and they came out with some rules after that, that, that were then enjoined. But those regulations pertain directly to particular companies. And those companies were able to enjoin those rules, I think, because they were very broad, but they were also directed at those companies. And so a court could say, okay, so here's what you know, is going to happen or could potentially happen to those companies. This rule is so broad that I think it's going to be difficult for anybody to challenge it until we really see what is happening with it. Because I, I think in this area, I think a court, our courts are going to accept the premise that the information communication technology sector is a critical one that Mm -hmm. and that there are national security concerns that could be raised by certain transactions involving these adversarial countries in that sector so Mm -hmm. i don't think they're going to look at this and say this is just a this rule doesn't have any logical basis whatsoever. I do think they'll be concerned by how broad it is. But what our courts generally do when they see a broad law like that is they say, let's see what the agency does. Let's see how the agency enforces it. And if it comes in and it basically says, we're not going to give you any guidance, we're just going to be as arbitrary as a lightning strike and go after companies that we think have done something but don't tell you what the criteria are, I think the courts will be concerned by that. If the commerce department lays out guidance, works with companies to, to try and make, to mitigate any of these risks, is reasonable in, in implementing this, or at least in enforcing this, I think they'll do better than they've done in the Xiaomi case, in the WeChat, and the TikTok case. If they are if they're as arbitrary as they were in those cases or as sloppy as they were in those cases i think there will be litigation and they'll they'll have a tough time because this rule is on its face quite broad and it, it's the powers are really i wouldn't say unprecedented but they're pretty broad and there's not a lot of precedent for them
0: yeah i could almost see because I, I actually had an internship back in the department of commerce many years ago when i was in law school in dc at the international trade administration and i can just imagine some of the folks there's uh cringing as they see this rule come out maybe as of course i i imagine how syphius the folks un, poorly understaffed folks at syphius at when firma came out and just again going back to the word floodgates just thought that oh my gosh how are we going to have the bandwidth to deal with all this and i would think the same would apply in this case do you think then it it will behoove folks there to to Put out either what will it look like some like you said some guidance would they grant maybe some general licenses because you know what i'm sure they also don't want to have a whole a, you know, string of companies like in the Huawei case where the, everyone was from the export controls where everyone was lining up to get a, an exemption.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, they are supposed to set up a licensing process. And I, I think in connection with that licensing process, there will be some general licenses. So there will be, or something that looks like that. And for those of you who aren't, totally conversant in the general license terminology. It's just a license that agency issues that says, if you meet these certain criteria, you can do what is otherwise prohibited and you don't have to ask us for permission. So the specific license, you come in and you you file a license request and you have to get a license that's particular to you. The general license applies to everybody who meets the criteria. And I think there will be some form of that, where it, whether it's guidance or a formal general license, it will be the Commerce Department saying, We don't, if you meet these standards, don't come in and ask us for a license. We don't care about those sorts of transactions. And I'm hoping that will be a big category because this rules you know, covers so much that otherwise I think commerce is going to be worried that it's going to be bombarded with license requests. And with companies, any company trying to be cautious is going to say, well, within the scope of this, should we just get a license request so that we can have some certainty that this is going to be okay? Because the risk, if you don't go get a license or go don't go try and get review, is that you'll do the transaction and then commerce will come come after you after the transaction is done and and unwind it. And that is enough of a risk that I think at least at first, unless commerce is careful and provides a lot of guidance as to what's okay, what they're not worried about, they're going to have just be bombarded with license applications at the beginning.
0: Yeah, it's because in some ways with some of these rules, especially this one, and having been here in China for 14 years I almost feel like some of these rules are being, are taking the playbook from China, as far as they draft as the drafting style and being quite broad. Of course, as we talked about already, you need to be broad because in, especially in this, in technology space, things are moving so fast. Things are changing so fast. It's hard it's a moving target, but to give this kind of discretion. Yeah. I think it would cause a lot of angst for companies in the U S for, com- for, for U S companies doing business in China, that's a known risk in this, this kind of overall tendency of there being a lot of gray area in the law and kind of regulatory ambiguity and a lot of discretion in the regulators. That's just kind of something that over the years, companies have gotten accustomed to here, but that does, that would still feel quite not normal in, in the U.S. And yeah, I could see companies lining up to, to get that license if it's not such an arduous process to apply for. And and then again, the floodgates would open with requests. One thing that I know by law is required, the when they come up with these rules, they have to come up with a, I think it's like an economic uh, impact analysis, particularly for SMEs, small, medium-sized enterprises. And it's striking to me in the rules in the, in the Federal Register on this one, they actually just come out and, and, and admit they have a huge range of the potential impact on small, medium-sized businesses because as we just talked about the potential actual application of this could be very narrow or could be very broad and that will determine the impact on these companies but in the act in that summary of that report in the federal register they actually basically admit Don't worry, small and medium-sized companies, because it's almost like you are not the drones we're looking for, and you are not the, you are, it is not going to be as bad as you think it will be, because we're not really going to implement this rule like everyone is afraid we're going to. And so that kind of, to me, just begs the question, why are you drafting the rule in this way in the first place, right? Can't you be a little more conscious on the front end, right? Let's, Let's draft something that's more workable on the front end.
1: Yeah, I, I hate this sort of what, uh, and it's I haven't heard it from the Commerce Department, but I've I've heard it from OFAC, and it's a similar principle here. This sort of strategic amb- ambiguity, where they essentially make a rule that is so broad that nobody knows what's prohibited, and what they expect to happen is that companies won't know what they're doing. Now, here the apparently the expectation is that companies won't know what's okay and what's not okay, so they'll just do it anyway. I. I worry about that in part because I'm not sure it's true. I I do think that even small and medium sized companies now are focused enough on compliance that they're going to try and get it right. They're, They're likely to see this and try and get it right. What I worry more about is that they won't know what to do and they'll get it wrong. And most of them won't face any consequences, but now and again, there will be this really serious enforcement action against a company that didn't do anything to comply with this rule. And you won't be able to tell where it comes from. And so it will be it will be one out of a million but the one out of a million will get hurt really badly and not have done anything different than the other 999,999 companies have done. And so it seems it just creates the potential for a huge amount of unfairness and uncertainty. So I really that's why I really hope that there is some really clear guidance as to what commerce is looking for beyond the general bounds of the regulation and the executive order
0: another analogy which i know you're you'd be familiar with as well is the foreign corrupt practices act right because the foreign corrupt practices act is also quite a broad rule that's been on the books for decades now. To make the point that you are, you are not exempt either just because you're small and you think you might might fly under the radar. Now, maybe that's not exactly the best comparison buying Chinese technology compared to corrupted bribery acts. Maybe not the, the, the quite analogous, but the idea is still there that the, the small companies are not, can't necessarily take comfort, right? Based on the fact that they'll think they'll fly under the radar.
1: No, I think that's a great analogy. And I also think that it, 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 one of the things about the FCPA is how it's evolved over time. I, I definitely think that when the FCP came FCPA came out, I'm not sure that the Commerce Department said it at the time, but there certainly wasn't the expectation that small and medium-sized companies would really pay a lot of attention to it, that it was really aimed at bigger companies. But as a practical matter now, every company that does business outside the United States is very worried about the FCPA, whether you're small, medium, large, or somewhere in between, because there have been such extensive enforcement of that very broad. I think it's the same way here. Whether small companies are worried about this at first, if it's, if this law is enforced at all, like the FCPA has been, they will be worried about it in the long run. And so that's why I said, I'm not sure it's realistic to really expect that there won't be a lot of attempts at compliance with small companies, because I do think that they're much more focused on compliance now than they were 25 years ago.
0: So Tim, let's take it home on, on one kind of big overarching question, because I think, as I mentioned at the top, I, I, I. summarize some of the rules in a bit in layman's terms about the new CFIUS firma, the general export controls, which have been applied to Huawei, the one we've talked about just now, ICTS, on supply chain security for U.S. purchasers. And then we've got, we talked about the Xiaomi cases for, and, and, and local cases for U.S. persons investing in Chinese companies that have a affiliation with the Chinese military. Now that the Biden administration is here, do we see, and, and I know a lot of these stem from AIPA, right? A yeah. lot of these all come from the same basic regulatory framework. Do we see the Biden administration making any new rules stemming from AIPA or otherwise? Have we seen the last of these kind of offspring of, of that framework come into place with these executive orders and so forth? Or can we expect still more to come through the, uh, the Biden administration?
1: I'm not sure that the Biden administration is going to be as, I'd say, aggressive is the right word. The, the, the Trump administration was very aggressive in its use of IEPA and even used it against the, the International Criminal Court at some point. And so I don't think we're going to see anything like that. The one exception is, I, I do think, particularly in light of recent events, President Biden already has to some extent and I think will continue to use IEPA in the cyber area. I don't think it's going to be a trade issue, but I think that the cyber invasion issue is becoming more and more salient. And honestly, although I I would dispute a lot of the findings of an of a national emergency that have been made under IEPA, I think that if the president were to make a finding with respect to to cyber and I, under IEPA, I think that would be justifiable at this point. They'll they might take some of the orders that they inherited from the Trump administration and to be clear president biden i think last week renewed the emergency that president trump found with respect to with the respect to the icts so it is it, it, he is Taking the emergency and keeping the order from President Trump, but in terms of his own executive orders, I think it will be much more rare for him to find an emergency and issue an executive order, and it'll be limited to things that are, I think, much more within the mainstream of what people think are are actual emergencies.
0: That's good to know, and I think that's that sounds like I I don't want to say hope, but at least uh, that's I think as yes, we've the, one of the things we talked about through this whole episode is that all of these rules came out in a kind of a haphazard way, so maybe now. Folks have a little time to catch their breath that we're past a presidential election cycle and and the rules can be made more comprehensively, thoughtfully, and and so forth. But we'll see only, we'll just have to see what comes, if anything, next And, uh, and, and how these existing rules get implemented that are already on the books. So, Tim, really fantastic to have you on. I can't imagine almost anyone else that could talk about a whole range of these issues as you could and did. So really appreciate it. Fantastic analysis. And we're so fortunate to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Art. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Yeah. And Tim, please check him out again, Embargoed with Brian Fleming. The two of them, they have a great fun show. I'm a big fan. Check it out. It's on all major podcast networks and you will not regret it. So it's excellent from start to finish. Please check it out. And, and Tim, also, just one other thing I ask every guest, of course, if folks have questions or maybe even want to engage you as counsel on some of these issues that come up, export controls, CFIUS, and these other rules we've talked about, how what's the best way to reach out to you? You're on the, the firm's website or LinkedIn? or?
1: Yep, LinkedIn firm website. And the firm website has my email. It has my cell phone number. Feel free to give me a call if you want to talk about these issues.
0: Okay, great. Thanks again, Tim, and pleasure having you on the show.